The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host, and today we're in for a treat, the guest that we have. But before I introduce the guest, I want to talk about uh, certain things, and one is the sponsor. Thank you to the sponsors that provide us opportunities to get the message across when it comes to energy. Also, if you'll go to uh, show notes, go to survey, There's a it takes about 10 seconds or less, and you can get for your hard hats and for your computers, you can get some stickers. So the stickers will be sent to you once you fill out that survey as well. And then also rates and review. We'd love to have you rate us and review, give us some input and suggestions along the way of who you'd like to hear from, what you'd like to hear about, and that'd be great. Also want to give a shout out and thanks to those that supported us in the documentary Along the way, still out there on PBS.org and other outlets, Sherwood Forest, the top secret, Sherwood Forest top secret, and we really appreciate those. We were honored to be nominated for a Heartland Emmy, and thanks for, again, those that helped us along the way. Also, the book, Monograph, America Needs America's Energy and Its Natural Resources, can be found at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And then a column at Woman Magazine that I've been uh, an editor, a contributing editor, that is, for the last 10 years, and I have an article coming out in the next, as well as I had each year, each of the times they come out for the last 10 years, that is, I have a column to hope you'll read and participate at Woman Magazine, and also Energy's Magazine, or Woman Magazine as well. Well, we have with us today, Greg Cozera, and he's got a lot of experience he wants to share with us, and I'm glad he does, because we need it here on our show today. Greg, welcome. Hey, Mark. Always good to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you, and we got introduced by a friend that we both have out in western Oklahoma, and that's Sean Wilson. I'd been listening to his show on exploring energy that he has, and as he hosts, he does a great job, and it's a daily program. And Anyway, I tuned in, and there you were, Greg, and I thought, I've got to find a way to reach out, and the best way was through Sean, and thanks to Sean, we're connected, and experiencing the expertise that you have to provide the energy industry is very welcome. So the way I like to get started, Greg, is still me reading your bio and reading about all your company, you know, what you've done with your company and so forth. Really like to have it where you get to discuss and talk about yourself, where you got started. Take your time and from your perspective, how did you get into the energy industry and where did it all begin? And kind of a little history of yourself is welcome. And again, take your time on this. Okay. Mark, actually, went to school at uh, West Virginia University and had all the plans in the world to do something else. And I was going to actually, I'm an ag engineer, that's my undergraduate degree, and I was going to join the Soil Conservation Service and build small dams all over the country. And turned out due to a recession, thanks to the Arab oil embargo. I remember those days, yeah. Yes. Well, the federal government wasn't hiring a company called Halliburton showed up on campus. I had no clue oh, yeah. who they were or what they did. And they were looking for all engineers. So uh, went to the interview, and I worked 
at a country club when I was in high school. We worked in the kitchen and we worked, did a lot of things, worked long hours. And all this guy talked about for 15 minutes was how long the hours are. And he told me, like, well, you'd be working like 60 hours a week. And I said, gee, that's less than I'm working now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember those days for sure. So so he hired me and, you know, went to Michigan. Of course, you know, back in those days at Halliburton, the training program was, I thought I was going to be an engineer and never really grasped what he told me is, Getting that truck. <laughs> so we started out literally driving a bulk truck and yes. working in the field. Great experience and really wouldn't trade it for anything. But back then, how would you say it? The training programs, I think a lot of your listeners can relate to this, were kind of loosey-goosey. I'll never, mm-hmm. they, they gave me a crash course, and I never drove a tractor-trailer. And that's where we were up in Michigan. <laughs> And so that had a few driving lessons, and it was a 4,000-gallon ass. <laughs> and then dispatcher said, engineer he said take that four thousand gallon trailer is a well location about 10 miles north of town i said martin i said i've never driven a truck like that by myself before and he said (laughs) you just get up there behind the wheel and after you're down the road a few miles you won't be able to make that statement anymore (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness well i was in several situations you were and here's the keys and i'm going oh no and so we both survived so did the companies (laughs) oh we did and it was i mean great but here's something to really think about. Back then, and I remember well, because I later on as an engineer, I got to actually put some treatments together. But oil was $18 a barrel. Right. Natural gas was $3 at MCF. Now, now stop and think about that. That was in the 70s. And today, our buddies up here here in this basin, they're getting about, last time I heard it, a buck and a half. Maybe it's up to $2 at MCF. Can you imagine? That was 40 plus years ago. Oh, it's amazing. And we're getting, producers are getting less for their natural gas today than they were 40 years ago. Now, we all know everything else has gone up in price, and thank God we've been able to upgrade technology, and obviously we find a way to do more with less and more efficiently. But imagine, and back then, it was a perfect split. I mean, if you multiply gas price by three, you got oil price. And today, what do we got? We got $70 oil, and here in this basin, we're talking $2 natural gas. So what is still, if you're in industry, if you're using natural gas for feedstock or to run a petrochemical plant, you're not doing so bad. <laughs> so really, but anyway, that's worked up through the ranks at Halliburton. Engineer, uh, got into sales and then ultimately management, managed a facility in Ohio. And then I got transferred here to West Virginia where we had four different facilities. And again, really great experience, hands-on. I mean, when you were running one of their field locations and I had four of them, you were pretty much running your own show. As long as you nobody got hurt and you were producing a profit, you had a lot of, it was a fun job, long hours, but it was fun. But anyhow, long story short, did that for several years and actually ended up working for several other frack service companies, Superior Well Service. Ultimately, they became neighbors who became C&J and finally ended up retiring from the industry in, in 2016. And Long story short, my wife and I started our own company. We do, I'm a professional speaker, so that's one of the things that I kind of yes. gravitated to over time. And it was great because when I was doing sales or even even as management, I get to do a lot of speaking, a lot of actual, you know, SPE papers, present those things. But it was really a great opportunity. And oh, long story short, I was at a, went to the summer meeting of the West Virginia Oil and Gas Association and I was doing a lot of work. I was past president of the Virginia Oil and Gas Association, did that for four years, and I was really 
doing a lot of work with public relations there. And mm-hmm. uh, Rhonda Rita from the OG, the Ohio Long Gas Energy Education Program, we got together and we put together a regional public relations meeting just to kind of, because really we get a lot of bad press and we don't really do, I don't think, a very good job of, a lot of times of fighting it. And mm-hmm. at that meeting, Jerry James of Artex Oil approached me and he said, look, he said, if you're interested, he said, we need someone, our region, this West Virginia on Pennsylvania, we've got abundant water, we've got natural gas, probably the cheapest, most abundant natural gas in the industrialized world. We've got a great workforce and we're, we've got a location right in the middle of the half the U.S. population and nobody knows about it. So my mm-hmm. job is to let the world know that we've got this great resource and this is a great place for manufacturing and the rest is kind of history. I mean, we really have. We've reached out. I've been to Tokyo. Our president's been to India. We've gotten that message out. And the real message for the oil and gas industry to producers is what we looked at as a team is we've got this great resource. And matter of fact, to give you an idea of the volume of it, I've mentioned this on Sean's show. If you put these three states together, West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, Mm-hmm. and made a country out of them. We would be the third largest natural gas producing country in the world. Oh, yes. Can oh, you imagine? Yes. Now, U.S. is number one, mm-hmm. and they're number one without, we branded this region as the Shell Crescent. Mm-hmm. U.S. is number one without Shell Crescent. Russia's number two. We're number three. And then you go down the list from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, China, you name it. This little region of the U.S. produces twice as much natural gas as the entire country of China. And if you want to look at why Europe has got such a big problem, when you look at the top 10 producers of natural Mm -hmm. gas in the world, there's only one on the list, and that's Norway, and they're number 10. So you can imagine why they've got a problem. And that's really what's happening now. With We do economic development. We do a lot of research at Shell Crescent, and we give it away with mm-hmm. the incentive of bringing industry here and, and re- basically recreating the what used to be the industrial belt, became the rust belt, and now it's fast becoming industrialized again. And that's really, let's face it, it's all due to the oil and gas industry, primarily natural gas. And I think when you look at this industry, think of all the problems this country has. And with the American oil and gas, we had a huge energy crisis. That's why I got hired by Halliburton. I mean, they were. That's right. I remember those days, yes. Yeah. And I do got to tell you this, since you're down in the heartland, so to speak, but Mm -hmm. we would go to Halliburton, big, you know, the annual meeting, the sales meetings, or even the whole management meetings is when we were managers. And the Texans would laugh at us. (laughs) I'd talk (laughs) about how many rigs I got running up here. And they'd look at me and say, Kazera, those aren't rigs. We call those service rigs down here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it really is to see now that this region is able to drill down 10,000 feet laterally. Now, it was 25,000. It's amazing. SWN yeah. has just drilled one that went 30,000 feet horizontal. It's amazing. And the important thing is it stayed in zone. I mean, no. The ability to drill down that deep and stay in zone for 30,000 feet. Oh, it's unbelievable. And then frack that well 150 times. I mean, that's why do we have such massive resources? And and the scary part, and that's why I think you and I are doing today is so important, because the public really doesn't grasp what's going on and why. You know, we hear about wind and solar, and and that's okay. If someone likes that, that's fine. But I have an affinity that when it's really cold, I like heat. And when it's really hot, I like cool. And my wife is even more extreme than I am. I mean, she really... (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, she when it's winter time, she wants heat, and it ain't gonna <laughs> cut it if the solar panels are covered with snow and it's freezing in my house. It's hard for me to grasp the whole and this whole energy education is so important because people don't really. I mean, how basic is that? When the sun doesn't shine, the solar panel doesn't work. When the wind doesn't blow, windmill doesn't. You don't produce electricity. My grandson figured that out. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we tell the Europeans. And they're looking at this region because, you know, Europe is kind of into the whole renewable thing, and that's fine. So I told him, I said, look, if you're going to come to the United States, I, we run a, a, a webinar, an energy webinar that one of the states put on. I said, if you're just coming to the United States to bring your manufacturing, and if you plan to just come here and use renewables, don't come. Don't waste your money. Stay in Europe, build some more solar panels, and put out a few more windmills. But I said, if you want to use those resources, you can come to the United States and know that with our natural gas that we have, it'll be backed up. You'll know that you have energy 100% of the time. Your factory won't be dark at 10 o'clock at night. And to give you a real more graphic example, I'm a high school soccer coach. We had a, an open weekend. I went to see my grandkids play over in Maryland. And after well, they – Congratulations on that, yeah. Oh, it's fun. It was wonderful. Fun. I mean, I coach at the high school level, but it's still fun it's to see. fantastic. Oh, yes. It's, and, and there's so much that you can do with those kids. And what I love is, I mean, we can get started on those kind of stories. And, and <laughs> We sure can. We can. <laughs> I will share one, but long story, we were visiting our son, and he took us to this farm. And the guy had solar panels on the roofs of all his buildings, and and he had this little store that they were selling ice cream, and you could buy, you know, cheese and meat and everything. And the farmer was there. I was enamored. I went up and talked to him. I said, tell me something. How are these solar panels working for you? He said, oh, he said, it's great. He said, it'll run my whole farm. I said, wow, that's awful. I said, tell me something, though. How do you keep these freezers going at 10 o'clock at night? He said, oh, he said, I got a natural gas generator. <laughs> he said, as soon as the sun goes down, the natural gas generator kicks in. I said, so he got all these people thinking he's running this farm on solar panels. And he is when the sun's out. But if it wasn't for natural gas, it wouldn't work. But the other piece I want to tell you, it goes back to maybe give everybody a little bit of hope. But we started coaching in high school. I coach at Charleston Catholic in downtown here in Charleston, West Virginia. And we had never, my kids all played there. And we'd never really won any, never even won. I think we won the section championship one time in like 20 years. And so we didn't, as coaches, we never talked about state championships. That wasn't even on our radar screen. And I started teaching. I, I talked to, after a couple of years, I went to Bruce, the head coach, and said, you know, assuming these young men learn leadership, but we're not teaching them anything. We just figure that it comes to them when they're seniors. And we started <laughs> right. teaching leadership. It was like two weeks into, we hadn't still had our first game yet. And I went up to, and I said, okay, gentlemen, we always have to have a vision. We always have to know where we're going to go. In our industry, your film, Sherwood Force, did that, that, did that so well. What was the vision? Well, they yeah, drilled and produce enough oil, and they didn't even know about D-Day. I mean, but I mean, they knew what the dream was. They knew what the goal was. They knew what they had to accomplish. And so I asked these gentlemen, what's your dream? Where do you want to be at the end of the season? And I'm figuring they're going to say, well, if we have a winning record, if we beat a couple, we had to play. They didn't have classes at that point in time. If we beat a couple of the big schools, that'd be great. And this young man stands up, looks at me and I, BJ, captain, only returning mm-hmm. starter we got, Mark. And he says, Coach, we want to play for the state championship. <laughs> and I thought, I looked at him, I'm ready, I'm thinking, he's joking. And he wasn't <laughs> serious. And I was so close. And I think we do this sometimes. I had to watch myself, even as a manager, we tend to aim, if we're not careful, management forces us. You know, I'd put out sales goals because there, you can't do that. Because if you miss it, bad stuff happens to you. I said, Well, 
which is better to have a logo and hit it or have a high go and miss it and be higher than the logo, you know? So right now BJ's going for the state championship and he convinced me it was possible. And it was so crazy that year that after every practice, we'd all get together and Bruce would talk about the goal for the next game or next practice. And then I would jump in and say, and I'd scream, what's the dream? And I'd jump up in the air, throw my hands up. And every, all the boys would scream at the top of the lungs to play, wasn't to win. It was to play for the state championship. Mm-hmm. And, the short story is we did. That year, we ended up oh playing goodness. for the state championship against all odds. And then ultimately, today, we've won 18 regional championships. We've oh been goodness. nine state championship games. We've won seven state championships. Right now, we're kind of on a two-game string. We were undefeated last season, won our second state championship. Congratulations. That's fantastic. It's fun. And But you think about it, Mark. What if I'd have said, you know, BJ, let's aim lower. Let's just go for the winning season. <laughs> what would have happened? And, you know, I can't make this stuff up. I'm not that creative. But here's the rest of the story. How What we all do as parents, as leaders in the oil and gas industry, we're all sowing seeds. And hopefully we're all sow good ones. But it was 2012. And my wife was coming home from work. And long story short, she took a 3,000, she's a diabetic, she passed out. She put a 3,000-pound Subaru. She took it airborne. And we live in a little town called Pinch. In downtown Pinch, she put this six-foot, this Subaru, six feet in the air, took out a street sign and a utility pole, rolled oh, it multiple times. And I had just oh. gotten over ahead of her. And I get this phone call, and it's on her phone. And this guy says, your wife's been in a little accident here in downtown Pinch. You might want to come down. Mm-hmm. So... Went down the bottom hill. She's still in the car, hanging, hit, you know, upside down. It was pretty traumatic. She ended up breaking her neck and a gash in her head. It was serious business. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But that was a Friday. The rest of the story is Sunday morning. It's like 8 o'clock, and she's in ICU. She's got all the wires and machines all hooked up. And this team of five doctors comes in, the trauma doctors. And they're doing the Sunday morning slow walking and whispering and everything. And as they're starting to leave, and she's kind of hung out with me long enough, she gets over this stuff. As they're leaving the room, she whispers, Doc. And the head trauma doctor comes over, and he's got to actually put his ear over her mouth. And he said, Yes. Linda says, We have a trip to Disney World planned for the middle of next month. Is there any reason I can't go? <laughs> Goal setter already. Yeah. And the doctor looks at me, starts laughing. He says, Well, you know, if you're driving, it's going to be kind of uncomfortable. I said, I got plane tickets. And he said, no problem. But the rest of the story is I recognize one of those doctors. And as they're leaving the room, he says to me, do you remember me, coach? And I said, Nathan, I'll never forget you. In 1999, at our first state semifinal game, he scored the goal in overtime that put us in the state championship game for the first time in the history of the school. And I said, how am I going to forget that? What a guy. And he's my wife's heart. He's her lung doctor today. He's, I mean, great young man. But I said, should I call you Dr. Keister? He said, I am Dr. Keister. You can call me Nathan, coach. But he knew about Linda's dream. He heard it. He knows what a dream is, and he knows how powerful yes. it is. The next day, he's got her out of bed, walking up and down the hall in a walker. One month later, I got a picture in front of the Haunted Mansion of Walt Disney World. Linda's with mm-hmm. our, oldest, our oldest granddaughter. She makes the goal. The power of a dream, the power of that. And now, you know, when I asked the kids, I said, you know, I know what they're going to tell me. They did the last two years. I said, okay, gentlemen, what's the dream this year? They're going to well, coach, what do you think? We're going back to the state tournament. We're going to win the state championship again. I mean, what do you think that's going to be a dream? I mean, they're used to aiming high. 
And how often, as leaders, as managers, we let them get away with aiming low. I'm glad you're saying all this because I feel like what you did, you said earlier about we're not always good at messaging when it comes, especially from the oil and gas sector, not just energy, but oil and gas specifically. And yet, just what you just told me, it inspires me to go, hey, I want to give you a dream and a vision, uh, goals to make. Because if we set down these goals, we can reach them. And we've got the talent in the oil and gas industry and your leadership. Thank goodness you're teaching leaders and they go into other professions, but they all use energy, by the way. I mean, everyone from medical on. And think about all the people that are, need to be trained along the way as to the use of energy in a proper way and how we can be more effective. So I'm really excited to hear what you're saying because it is very inspiring what you just told me because it does apply. True leadership is, I wouldn't say lacking, but stepping up the leadership is that needs to be there in uh, messaging. Uh, I think we're very quiet when we should be telling about how our industries help hospitals and education, higher education and athletics and all these things been a big factor in the communities like yours. So anyway, absolutely. please tell us more. I'd love to hear more. You know, and I think that's exactly, I think you nailed it, Mark, is leaders have courage. And sometimes you just got to step up there. And what I didn't know, matter of fact, what was interesting in 2012, and it had been not, matter of fact, Linda's car accident delayed it a little bit, but I wrote a book on just the fracks, ma'am. And it's designed to kind of explain, everybody's talking about the evils of fracking. Well, I thought, we got to tell them the truth. <laughs> and, and I put that book out here. It's written not as a textbook, but it's written so the average individual can pick it up, read it, and there's some a little bit of graphics in there. But you know, when I wrote that book in 12, do you realize our average lateral at that point was about 6,000 feet? Can you imagine how we've changed since then? Oh, my goodness. Yes. But when you do those kind of things, I'll never forget, put the book out there. We had a book signing in downtown Charleston, little hole-in-the-wall bookstore on Summer Street, private store. And Saturday morning, my whole soccer team shows up. And we're having a great time signing the book. And then this guy shows up. He's got a ponytail, which is fine. Lots of old gas people have ponytails. No big deal. But he's got his little entourage. And he said, when are you going to do the book summary? I said, well, I'll do it now. I stood up. Find out he was head of the Green Party in West Virginia. He drove two hours on a Saturday morning to come to my book signing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? And I wasn't planning on a fight. And all of a sudden, so he's roasting me about talking about all these evil things that the oil and gas industry is doing. We're releasing all this radiation to the atmosphere. And you name it. It's all out there. And I looked at my boys. I could see them saying, hit him back, coach. You can't let him do that stuff. <laughs> and so I finally had enough of this stuff. And I said, okay. I said, I said I'm going to tell you. I said, Here's what the oil and gas industry has done for the planet. And I went through a litany of the things that I just me, I was involved with. I mean, we're doing things. We were doing coal bed methane, capturing methane out of the mines in Virginia, mm-hmm. using it to heat homes and, I mean, as a resource, instead of venting it to the atmosphere like the Chinese are doing. I went through the litany. My master's thesis in environmental engineering was environmental related on cementing we were reusing water and whatever to long story so i went through the litany of what this industry Mm -hmm. has done to benefit the planet we've lowered co2 by 20 percent, and even then we were already on a path to lower it and i pointed at him i said you know we're really the environmentalists not you and i'm waiting for him to come back at me with something Mm -hmm. and he drops the f-bomb on me (laughs) 
It's all he had. He had nothing, but all he could do was personally attack me with the F bomb. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. I'm practically rolling because he doesn't didn't realize what he did to the Green Party in West Virginia. My Charleston Catholic just happened to be. There's a lot of doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. businessmen, <laughs> government people that all have their kids at Charleston Catholic and playing on the soccer team. So he's dropping the F bomb. And we had just got done winning our fourth state championship in a row. So this guy's dropping the F-bomb on me in front of their kids and these parents who happen to be leaders in the community. And I'm thinking, buddy, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the key is presenting facts, you know, getting past the myths. I think that, you know, when you get down to it by just staying in ground like you've done, which you did and continue to do, is why the message is getting better day by day, maybe one person at a time. I see some results coming from this and because of your efforts, like you shared one with me even recently that where somebody had heard about a certain item and, and helped them get a better perspective of oil and gas. So I think that's the way you're approaching is correct. We need to do that as an industry and need to do more of it. Get people like you out there telling the facts, not the myths. the more that we get. And you know, one thing that I noticed, we may not always, and I know our industry, we're kind of like cowboys and we're kind of independent we want to do for ourselves. That's fine. That's good in a lot of ways. But the challenge, I think, with that is more is sometimes we're not the best messengers. And not because of what we do or don't do. But I think we have to be cognizant, too, that I did a two-day frack. It was a seminar, University of Richmond, their adult education college, wanted to know more about this. So I'd already retired from the industry. They called me, and I went over and went through the whole thing, two days. And I was wide open about my background in oil and gas and being the Virginia president for four years. When I got done, I said, they all got it. I mean, this whole group understood the importance of oil and gas and how fracking fit into that. And I said this, I said, now, you know who I am and my history. If I'd have been here as the Virginia Oil and Gas Association president and did exactly the same thing these last two days, would you have believed me? And 100% said no. So that's our challenge sometimes is maybe we have to have a different messenger. And one of the benefits to me, because I'm not in the industry now, I work for a nonprofit or an economic development organization. So there's a lot of things I can say now based on my experience. And nobody can say, well, of course you'd say that you're getting your salary comes from those guys. No, Mm -hmm. we're creating jobs. And so it's a fun position to be in because now I can tell the story. And people, you don't have that, well, they listen, they believe. And I think sometimes we have to think in terms of who are messengers. One thing I will share with you, because while well, I'm thinking about it, it, was I was kind of excited. A lady, she works for IPAA now, but she was for 10 years. She came in under when I was president, but she did our PR for Virginia Oil Gas Association. She sent me a little clip, and I'm thrilled that Williams Company put out a little deal. It was on electricity. They were talking about uh, electrification. And... Mm-hmm. It was just a 30-second deal. They were talking about electrification. And then they came on with, and this is the golden age of natural gas. And I'm thinking, there's too many companies out there, Mark, that I think are kind of bending over to the will of, well, you know, we're really not an oil and gas company. We're a wind and solar company. And it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, I see that in Europe where you see a lot of these petrochemical companies are talking about things that make no sense at all. I mean, Mm. from an engineering standpoint. But what I loved about Williams, because I really believe that's where we are. I was talking to a rural electric. He's the guy, he's the 
I guess, president of the, it's a rural electric co-op up in Southern Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you think when it comes to all these EVs? I said, can you guys handle that? And he said, yeah, our grid's fine. We have the substations. We can do that. He said, but what worries me, he said, I'm not sure we're going to have the electricity because he said we already had to deal with blackouts last when it was cold last Christmas. And he said, we can't continue to take down. They have a pretty good mix of coal, natural gas, and they've got a little wind mm-hmm. and solar in there. And I think here's even a little hydro. But he said, you can't take down coal power plants and natural gas and coal and nuclear plants that'll run 365, 24-7 and replace them with a like amount of windmills and solar panels and think we're going to be fine because we're not. And that's my biggest fear is we've got places that, and I think that's why the energy education is so darn important because I'm served by John Amos, a 3,000 megawatt coal-fired power plant. If they ever take that thing out of service and decide they're going to replace it with 3,000 megawatts of windmills, it's going to get really ugly here. I'm going to have to start looking for a place in Florida. <laughs> because well, no question. It's be really cold. And I guess that's the challenge is we're getting by now. But if we don't speak up, and I love what Williams did, because the bottom line is, fine, you want to put out windmills, go. Do it. Know that you better have natural gas behind you because it's going to get really cold and dark if you don't. And I think that's the message that why aren't we telling that story? Why aren't we stepping to the plate and saying, look, folks, if you want it, go for it. Show us that it works. But we all know what happens at 10 o'clock tonight. Natural gas, our whole industry. And then the other piece that everybody seems to forget is the petrochemicals, the ethane, propane, butane. (laughs) All those little carbons just happen to be the building blocks for the computers we're on, the cell phones. And, you know, you want to have an EV, that's great, that's okay, whatever floats your boat. Know that it's 70% petrochemicals. I mean, that's the makeup of that vehicle. So don't even begin to think in terms of we can get rid of fossil fuels. No, we can't. Now, maybe someday we'll find something, but realistically, I think, and I think that's where from people in the industry, particularly engineers who have more credibility than most folks, have to have the courage to step up to the plate. And I know it's hard because we were doing back in the day when we had all these hearings on hydraulic fracturing, everybody was paranoid about it. And mm-hmm. there was a young, it was a public hearing, there was about a thousand people in the room up in Pittsburgh. And one of the engineers was working for me. They were only limited, they were limiting the speakers. And he was one of the guys that had a yellow armband. He could actually speak. And there was a break and he's leaving. I said, where are you going? He said, I can't do this, Greg. He said, I said, why? I said, you can speak. He said, they're making fun of us. He said, I'm going to say something stupid and then they're going to make fun of me. Mm. What? My goodness. I mean, some of the things that came out of their mouth were just, you know, the antis, if they know that nobody is going to challenge them, the fantasy gets even worse. And I think what I know is that we can all work together and we don't know everything as oil and gas people. But on the other hand, the common goal that's out there is we want economical energy. We want a clean environment. And we want to keep the darn lights on and the heat on because if you don't, really bad stuff happens to people. So I think if we start there, we can get rid of some of the fantasies. And, you know, there's always ways that whatever we're doing now, we can improve. But I think the biggest thing we can do right now that I'm not hearing about, we start talking environmental stuff is, yes, we're lowering carbon here. We're doing a great job thanks to natural gas and, and a lot of the industry is doing. But nobody, go to Washington, look at John Kerry, nobody's talking about China. Everything we do, China undoes. The one thing we can do as oil and gas people 
is we can promote manufacturing here in the United States using yes. our resource. Glad you said that. And it's already, since we talked, there was a company that reached out to me a couple months ago, and we're already in process doing this. They called me and they said, Greg, we have a manufacturing. They make plastic compounds for some stuff. We want to shut our plant in China down, and we want to move that product. We want outsources to companies in your region. Can you connect us? And so we're in the process of doing that. But can you imagine what that means when you take down an entire factory in China that's using coal-fired electricity? And the rest of the story is, because I did a lot of coal bed methane work back in the day, Mm -hmm. it's not just the coal that they're burning, but China has some of the gassiest coal on the planet. And the thing is, they don't have the permeability. It's so tight that we actually tried to help them frack it and end up, I think it was the Himalayas screwed them up because they end up getting Mm -hmm. horizontal fracks, which is the kiss of death. So they couldn't even frack it like we do in the United States. So what happens when they mine that coal, they have a lot of methane, they have a lot of explosions, but you know, that's okay. Matter of fact, that was interesting. In China, it's a non-reportable incident unless you kill five if you kill four it's a bad (laughs) if you kill five you actually have to tell (laughs) but can you imagine the more coal they mine and they're putting coal plants on monthly all that methane is going straight to atmosphere Mm -hmm. so you got that going on plus they're burning the coal so how do we solve the problem it's real simple we use our energy our natural gas our oil and we bring that industry back here under our environmental law using our energy. And when you do that, you've solved one problem. But if you're going to sell the product here and you make it here, you eliminate over 20,000 miles of transportation. That's right. That's exactly right. It's the only thing I know of where you can actually tell a company, if you go to regional supply chain where you make it here, use our energy and you sell it here, can you imagine what your cost is? And now, you know, if you need carbon If you have to worry about your carbon footprint, you can actually show a direct correlation between you shut this plant down in China, we're making it all here. Can you imagine what we've done globally? And we've created jobs, we're using our energy, and we're doing something good for the planet. It's a triple win in so many different ways. And I think that's the message that I really have a ball with people that claim to be environmentalists and have no idea what the hell they're doing to destroy the planet. Well, I hope what you just said is that we meet the challenge because we do have a challenge. And the challenge is to step forward, be leaders, look at the economic development that comes through manufacturing alone that you've talked about. And all the environmental issues can definitely be curtailed in the right way. And we can be more effective as a global partnerships and those kind of things if we're listened to and dialogue. The key is, I agree with you, we can communicate, we can dialogue and we can come up with results. And you've made some great presentations today because there's not just one presentation, there's several in there that we can grab hold. And I hope to have you back on the Energy Fellows to discuss those because there's several subjects there that we do need to get more in depth with. And you're the one that can do that and help guide us in that way. So I appreciate you. I wish we had more time and I definitely want you back on the program. Anytime, Mark, anytime. I love what you're doing because this whole energy education is so important. Oh my, it is. And Greg Cosera, you're a part of the leadership that we need in the nation and we'll have you back and get some results is what we're going for. More dialogue. Again, Greg, appreciate you. And thank you uh, to all those that listen to the Energy Fellows podcast. We hope you'll tune in for upcoming episodes of the Energy Fellows. I'm your host, Mark Stansbury. And remember, the future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.